Welcome back to The Fowler Effect. I'm your host, Michael Fowler. Um, One of the topics that was brought up um, repeatedly was my pilgrimage I did in Japan, which is uh, the Shikoku pilgrimage. Um, That's S-H-I-K-O-K-U, just in case I'm just butchering it. But um, what it is, uh, depending on the exact route you go, it's a 880-mile hike around this island on the south of Japan, uh, Shikoku. And what it is, the history of the last Buddha, um, he had built up temples around the island and it became popular, um, you know, I think 1,200, uh, if not just over 1,200 years ago, to start visiting these temples at, um, as a spiritual um, uh, and health, like healing journey. And, um, but to best tell the story of Shikoku, I think it's better to uh, go bef- do the before it, uh, and just go in order. That way, everything makes as much sense. So if we go back uh, to 2010, uh, I was just moving into uh, Oahu of Hawaii. And I moved to the North Shore. And uh, at the time, I was in a relationship that was uh, no good, very toxic. And um, whatever... You know, I I have no excuse as far as why I stayed in for as long as I did. But um, regardless of that, by the time I had built up that courage to um, finally cut everything and just, you know, take separate ways of life, I got that I'm pregnant response. And I wasn't going to bail out. There was never that was never a thought in my mind. I was, you know, I was going to stick it through, you know, that being the case. And so um, I just, you know, didn't go anywhere. And to be honest, during the time of pregnancy and after, and, you know, a little a short time after the birth, uh, the relationship was okay. It was really nice. Um, we did everything that couples did when uh, they're expecting. We had the baby shower. We attended the classes, you know, the doctor's visits. Uh, reading the baby books, you know, talking to the baby inside the womb and all those all those things that, you know, most people, uh, you know, most couples would go through. And um, and then the day came when uh, we named him Thor when he came. And um, and for those of you who are parents and have experienced that, um, you know, it's almost indescribable. And the best way I can put it for those of you who are not parents yet is if you can imagine when you meet someone, uh, you know, outside of like mom and dad, you know, those guys, when you meet someone, whether it be a relative or a friend and you lo- you grow to love them and, and the more you, time you spend with them, you know, that love grows and, you know, to, you know, to what, you, you know, I guess as far as the that bond it creates and when you have that baby it's like all that love is in one shot in one big dose you get it all at once it's just a, a wave that comes at you and um you know forever changed my world and um as we went on we uh you know I'm I was teaching classes um doing my best to uh, you know, make sure everything was provided for. I had gotten us into a house uh, up in Pupakea, and uh, we had, you know, did everything. You know, the baby room was ready. I painted a big mural on the wall. Um, we were, you know, everything was almost picturesque. 
And I don't know, maybe like since I was, I don't know, I'm going to say since, you know, maybe like right before I started getting in my 20s, when, when I guess when I became really, I was getting good at jiu-jitsu and I knew that was that was going to be my life, I had kind of said in my mind that before I turned 30 that I wanted to have that, you know, have that family and have a house and have the gym, you know, just, you know, almost, you know, like that that white picket fence dream. And uh, and I was really close to pretty much achieving it. You know, the only thing really short was I just didn't own the house I was renting. Um, I had, you know, I just I'd busted my ass. And within the the short time, you know, being there in Hawaii and and, you know, I, the having a baby is very big. It's real motivation and it'll make you do some hard work. And uh, I was able to eventually, you know, get a full-fledged gym on the North Shore, you know, like a building with air conditioning and bathrooms and water fountain, you know, like a full, like how most gyms are. And in Hawaii, the first birthday is always real big. And so we had talked about, uh, we had talked about getting married just because of the fact of the child, like there was, the relationship was still kind of back, was kind of already fading back to what it was. And I didn't care how rough it was. I was plan. I planned just to stick it out for it because I was just so into being a dad. I loved, uh, you know, I loved that little man. So I was, I wasn't going anywhere, and um, <clears throat> we decided the, the the birthday would be better to do first. So we did the first birthday, and then for the following year, we had decided um, that, that year we'd get married, and so we planned out. You know, a nice ceremony, the whole the whole nine yards. You know, family came out. <clears throat> my, all my family flew in, and uh, we had the wedding. And then shortly thereafter, um, I don't know if it was just for the party or just for the dress or whatever it was, but it was obvious that it was over. Um, you know, especially when uh, I had to have people call me to let me know that, hey, you know, just so you know, you know, we're just she's you know back with her ex. And so, um, even though it didn't, it more irritated me that I had just spent all that money on the wedding. I wasn't so, uh, you know, I, the, the relationship was already kind of dead. I just was going through the motions. But, um, and, uh, you know, I was just, like I said, I was just willing to stick it out. But uh, that was it. I wasn't going to stick that out. So, I went and applied for a divorce. And um, <clears throat> so, as that process went on, we also had to do the, uh, you know, the, custody classes and you know setting up a schedule and all that for shared for the shared custody and we went through and we were doing that and if that was the way it had to be that was so you know so be it um it wasn't it wasn't ideal it definitely wasn't that dream i had but um you know you, it was all for the you know anything i could do to you know to to i was you know i don't know it was just the the it, that's something that everyone goes through, I guess, is if not everyone, I'm t I uh, take that back, but it's not uncommon for people to get divorced and now have to share that custody and go back and forth. And, you know, now different sacrifices are being made. So that was going on. And during this time, I was uh, during the time of the divorce is when I actually was getting the moving into this new gym. And um, it was. Um, I would say <clears throat> around October of 2013, um, I get a phone call and, uh, this local, like a, one of the older, older locals, 
um, big name on the on the on the North Shore, just kept kept giving me a call and wanting to meet up. And um, I had heard stories of him, but didn't really, uh, you know, uh, I had you know small small interactions with him, but nothing. I I had, I was smart enough. I knew not to ever get in his pocket, like you know, to be in his pocket to be you know to owe him something. And so I just kind of avoided. I didn't, you know, really. Uh, I had the gym to attend to, and I wasn't, you know, my boy. To t- I just wasn't, you know, wasn't really acknowledging his, the uh, these requests. And so after a few days of that, he finally just showed up to my gym one day um, while I was, you know, right at the end of class, and I had just finished up teaching, and um, the students were still there. Uh, just some of them are, you know, they're still getting themselves ready to leave, and uh, he asked to speak outside. And as we step outside, he just was pretty straight up and was like, hey, do you want to talk or do you want to see the paper? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what's the paper? And he opened up this piece of paper, and it was it just said DNA match 99%. And he explained that my son was a DNA match for his grandson and his son. So meaning that was the granddad. And uh, it took him to find out because his son wasn't going to, wasn't going to step up to the plate. Already knew the truth, but wasn't going to step up to the plate. And so he took initiative. And um, I can't explain, you know, when he said, the, you know, exactly, you know, when he told me exactly how that felt. Um, it's definitely, uh, you know, I, call, I immediately got a hold of my ex just to make sure, sh- you know, to kind of battle the truth out of her. And when I got everything, and I, you know, I, I was just, I was floored. I didn't know what to do. And the next day I got my little man back from, it was my turn to have him. And uh, especially after all this had just, you know, blown up. And so I immediately took him and got my own DNA test. Because I wanted to, I wasn't, I knew in my heart that it was true, but I still had to find out for myself. And so I took him to the doctor and we got the DNA test. And um, by the time I got the results, I didn't have, it was, you know, my days were up with a little man. He was already back with his mom and the doctor was really late on calling me. And uh, when I finally got a hold of him, I could tell he was just super hesitant and uh I told him I already knew the answer. I just needed to, and he, you know, he just confirmed. And even though there's no reason for him to apologize, that was that was the end of that conversation. And it didn't make me love that little guy any less. Um, I was his dad. You know, I was there. I watched him. You know, being born. I was there for. You know, I was just because of that jujitsu lifestyle. I was able to be there for every moment that he had. And you know, first words, first steps. You know, he got to travel and come with us on, you know, to to train in different places. Uh, you know, there wasn't a moment, you know, I wasn't able to be a part of his life and vice versa. And so I wasn't about, I didn't really care that, that this, this meant nothing to me. But it was still such a shock, I had to get out of there for a bit. Uh, so it was, it was just such a blow. I, uh, I got a hold of my friend and... Uh, he was walking up from the north to the south of Japan. Um, if you don't know, Ensign Inoue, he does just all kinds of just incredible work and help 
for the the tsunami survivors up in the north of Japan. And he decided that him and another person, Roman from uh, from Fukai on Guam, they were going to walk from the north from Hokkaido or to the very the very top all the way down to the bottom to Kyushu. And they had started doing that and raising awareness and getting donations that he could use on his next missions to bring supplies and whatever other help he could, you know, be, you know, just to be of service. And when I called him and told him what had happened and asked him where he was, he said he was in Tokyo. And I asked if it would be okay if I joined them for a bit. And at first, I think it was, in my mind, I was going to go and just, I didn't have any thought of quitting or not, you know, not going the whole way. But um, I think it was more kind of like, you know, it, you know, I don't I don't think I, I think they were surprised that I stayed through and, and grinded it out the rest of the way because it was um, an amazing feat and they had already done so much. And so I kind of jumped in just a little over halfway left um, and it was an amazing experience all on its own. That uh, was a different way to see Japan. It was, you know, from Tokyo to Kyushu for myself, it was uh just on foot just amazing to see each city and you know it was like because it was on foot it was slow but because of how much we walked and how many and we saw new cities almost every day it was like slow motion fast forward it was a it was just a crazy experience and it was really amazing and while we were walking we were discussing that you know this is this is fun in essence, you know, you've got company and nothing, you don't face any of these things alone and the sleeping outside and the camping and any of the dangers of the weather and all the experience of, you know, just trying to find some place to sleep or what's, you know, where are we going to eat? Is there food places around? All that was, was shared. And so it wasn't so scary. And my friend told me, he's, he said that this is a distraction, you know, this, you know, if you want real change, you need to go do the Shikoku pilgrimage by yourself. And so I told him, I was like, that's, that's, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll go do that. You know, I'll do it. I'll do it next year. You know, I'll do it within a year from now. And so we finished that walk. And um, during the walk of, you know, going with them, we had stopped at a, a hardware store kind of early on. And I remember that we had saw this massive hammer. And since my boy's name was Thor, Roman had commented that, you know, how, you know, that Thor's hammer. And so I got the hammer and almost in like, and the idea was since I didn't have my boy at the moment, but I was still, you know, I still want to be there for him. I just needed this time away. I was going to carry it the whole way. And it wasn't anything extreme to carry, but it was it was a massive hammer and so uh, it did need to be switched from shoulder to shoulder it was uh it, it was extra weight for sure and just for what it represented i didn't mind and i felt that it was good to have have a, a burden or have this you know other test thrown in but um there was no really there was this none of this was healing it was just really distraction during this whole during that whole walk, and uh, I'm glad I was, if I was able to bring and help any of the cause, I, I, I you know, I was, I was thankful for that, and just the experiences, and, you know, just the, you know, we got to walk through Hiroshima and see the devastation of, of what was left, and, you know, the epicenter, and it, it, everything is rebuilt, but just still seeing the history, and, and just, that was a, uh, just to see the things firsthand, that you, you know, gives you an idea of just, 
how crazy that whole, you know, the World War II was. And that was just one experience of many and just seeing different, you know, countrysides of Japan and like some big city and some would be just rice fields and some was small town and some look like legit huts like built out of like clay and straw and then there was you know there was just and then depending on who we met along the way like you just got the you know some, some nights we would you know go to bed with just like a little rice ball if we had that and then other nights we would get treated to like an amazing you know barbecue dinner and we were even able to stop and teach a little jujitsu along the way so that was kind of cool as well but after I came back to Hawaii, uh, like I said, nothing had really changed. And now with this new added um, person in the mix of, the, of, of just, you know, getting visitation, uh, it was just getting stressed. And uh, since I had no real communication between any other parties, I just took, took Thor on my days. Um, it made the, the real father take us to court so he could fight for his own days. And when he did that, it was to take my name off the birth certificate and, um, you know, just get everything pretty much done properly. And even though I showed up to court, I asked if I had, do I have any real power? Like, do I have any say? Is there a reason for me to be here? And she said, I'm sorry, but no, you don't. So I just asked the lawyer if I could leave. And, uh, you know, that was it. I was out of there. And so we still had the, the last few days of the visitation, but um, February of 2013 was the last time I got to really, was the last time I got to hold my boy. I've seen him one time since that point, but that was just in passing. And you could tell that he looked confused already by this point. And so back, I had to make a decision that, do I try to fight for this child that, that I, you know, I mean, I've, I want to desperately be in his life, but I don't have that kind of income and that kind of funds to fight, you know, the biological father. And it's just, it's astronomical, the amount it would take. And plus, he was going into just chaos almost. The mom was having a new baby. The new dad was having a new baby with his, his girlfriend. It was like, there was two, it was just so much going on. And I thought if I kept trying to pop in randomly, I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to be even more, you know, messing with this little guy's head. He's going to be so confused. And he wasn't even three yet. He was only about two and a half. And so anyone knows as a parent, those are fun ages. But that was the last time I got to see him. And it was by his choice. I guess as they were driving by my house one day, he had, um, he requested to see me. And as I held him just for the 10 minutes that I had him, I remember he told me, I, you know, I was in tears. And he said, I know you're sorry. I know you're sad, Daddy, and I'm sorry. And just that being the last thing he said, or being, just being around him, it was just, it was hard because I felt like he understood a little. But I also still still feel it was the right decision just to back out and stay away. And so I just, I don't know, just went, you know, went on from day to day. I wasn't able to sleep anymore. I wasn't able to eat anymore. Like, even if I did eat it, there was no taste. 
and it was just a few bites and I would just be over it. I couldn't, there was, you know, each day was not, wasn't like, you know, the thoughts of suicide, nothing like ever that strong ever come in, but the days just got real, real dark and real, you know, I continued teaching what classes I could and traveling as a little bit, but I just, I was just devastated. But as it came closer to the time I said I was going to do the Shikoku pilgrimage, I got everything together and, and, and set my, and prepared everything I could just to be ready to go because I had read online that it, just for the basic course, which is 88 temples and not basic course, but just the, the simpler route, which was 88 temples, was still over 700 miles. And that takes an average of set, it's set of 45 days if you're walking. And I was doing the 880 miles, the, the 108 temples. And those extra 20 temples, those were called Bongai Temple. And for those of you um, who have never looked into it, it's kind of like... Uh, it's still a temple. It's just like a different offset. Like it's not on the, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. Like it's almost like a Marriott and then you have Courtyard Marriott. It's still a Marriott, but it's just a different one. And um, so these temples, uh, I don't understand why they were less visited in essence, depending on where they were at, but they had, I would say like stronger history or like a, a, a way different, like a way more, uh, in touch story with the last uh, the last Buddha Kobodaishi, and so I get to the first temple, and the first temple is where you get um, like all your gear, all your uh, you know any of this like the, the 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 things you need just for the hike itself, and um, you traditionally you'll wear white, and that only symbolizes you're a pilgrim, but that's also traditionally what you'd be buried in. Because this is a a, spell, a spiritual and health journey, um, people have died on it, you know, because they're really sick and they're using this as, uh, I, there's all kinds of reasons. Um, I met one man on the journey and he had survived um, cancer and he was doing it because he wanted to live again. So in essence, not, not to get healed, but to he get healed in a different sense. So everyone had their, their own little reasons for going, or I shouldn't say little, but... Everyone had just it could been it could have been for fun it could have been because they lived in the area, and so and you didn't have to necessarily start at Temple One you just have to start and finish at the same temple. And so from Temple One, uh, I don't know the miles exactly because everything's in kilometers, but the first five temples were literally only like a few kilometers apart from each other. So we got the or I got to visit the first five like really fast in the day and you walk through the gates of most temples besides they all had different kind of grounds and they may have been um you know more elaborately decorated than other they, they, they all had they all were different but traditionally you'd walk in and you would go to the fountain and you would go through the steps of cleansing um as far as drinking the water and washing your hands uh at the at the wash basin and then you would go to, uh, depending on how many temples you were going to do, um, you would go and, uh, or how many temples within the compound. Like there was different temples for different things. You would just do your prayers <clears throat> at, you know, all these temples. And pretty much I had told myself is since I don't understand what's going to go on, I'm just going to go to the temple that speaks to me the most and I'm going to do my prayer there. And... 
before I go any further, to give you kind of like a little background on the prayer, um, because that was just a that was a huge part of 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 this pilgrimage. Um, while I was in Japan, before I started the journey, just randomly, the Hawaii Five O actor Alex O'Loughlin had heard what had happened, as far as me, you know, in essence losing my boy, and. He wanted, uh, it was just through friend of a friend, and he he wanted to get in contact, and he wanted to meet. And so I met up with him and kind of explained, you know, exactly what happened in my best ability. Um, It wasn't easy at the time still because I was just, there was no way to hold back tears just throughout the day, whether I was talking or not. And I explained about the pilgrimage, and that was why I was going to do it. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be better. I wanted to feel better. And... He had asked if there was, you know, about the prayer that I was going to say at the temples. And I told him, I was like, there is like, you know, like a um, a prayer that they say, but I, you know, I'm not going to say that one. It's, I was like, it's, it doesn't have any meaning to me. I don't understand what it means. And I don't think it'd be right for me to just say meaningless words at these places. Um, so I had planned on saying a prayer. I just didn't have one yet. And he asked if it would be okay if he wrote me one. And so he wrote me out a prayer, and I repeated that prayer at every single, at all 108 temples, and plus any other spot that I felt that it was necessary. And it took quite a few temples. I want to say it was well into the 20s before I could get through that prayer without stopping because of tears. I I don't know why he reached out, but... Um, it was just necessary. It was, it was, it was, he just became part of the process. And I was really thankful because he, not only that, he, um, you know, between him and Ensign, they, they both called and checked up on me, you know, as often as possible. And so I was really thankful to have uh, just those guys in the, you know, during this trip, you know, as far as at least being in telephone's reach. So continuing on that first day, and doing these prayers. So the way the Bongai temples would work is you would do like one, two, three, four, five, and then you would come to sometimes it would be on the path, sometimes it would be off the path. And Bongai Temple One was after Temple Five. And after and, and as soon as you would go into the mountain, you would go up to this temple and you come back and then you would go back to start on back on the path and then you would go to Temple Six. So when I get to Bangai Temple 1, or as I'm climbing, I didn't realize it was going to be this kind of a mountain on the first temple, like the, our first Bangai Temple. And I'm carrying more gear than I need at the moment. I've got a few things that I actually ended up mailing as far as books and things that I thought that I was going to keep on me. But it was just ended up being too heavy to hike with and keep on my person at all times. Like, there's never really a break from letting your stuff, you know, putting your stuff down. So you really learn just to have bare essentials. And I'd also brought the hammer. In the beginning, on that first that first trip that I had done uh, with Ensign and Roman, that hammer I told you I'd rep- it, you know it represented you know my boy and 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 carrying him, and since he wasn't there and having and having that that not burden but just always having that reminder, and I felt that since my decision was made to step away especially him being so young in hopes that he would just forget me completely. I got to let go of this thing. So I carried it up to that top of that mountain. And on the way up, I just remember 
everything being so heavy and cumbersome that I actually had to stop and drop everything just to throw up and remember and just thinking about, you know, what am I getting myself into? What have I, you know, what is this? This is, I, you know, I just wasn't, I didn't know what to expect and I just wasn't, you know, not that I wasn't, wasn't ready, but it just, it hit me. It's, it was a, it was a big shock. But I made it up to this first Bongai temple, and it was built in 500 AD. It was um, the 1200, the 1200th year of this pilgrimage as well. So it was really special because of just uh, the whole experience that you know that being such an anniversary year, and uh, and it being. You got these extra, like the books they gave you, like you got stamped at every temple. But because of that anniversary, I got like in another stamp. So it was even, you know, more special of a time to to do this pilgrimage, and especially to see these these temples that have just some of them are destroyed and been rebuilt, and some had made it. And this one had been there since 500 A.D. And it was just, you know, really impressive to see something that's been there so long, and to see the trees that have just, you know, been untouched. And it was just you know amazing in the bamboo forest and these trails that this is where you know this is a road but this trail is where buddha walked and it's just um you know i undescribable some of the you know feelings and places and so as i make my way back down from that first temple uh first bongai temple it's getting dark and i do not want to be stuck in the mountain in the dark so i'm really rushing it down and the way sleep works there is you can go ahead, if you have the cash and you don't want to, you know, do any like hardships, then you can go ahead and get hotel most anywhere. Most of the, not all the temples, but a lot of them in the area, like, you know, with, you know, within some miles will have like sleep arrangements. And it's usually kind of expensive because you're paying for, you know, everything, dinner, a, like a little prayer service, the, uh, the you know the bath the bathhouse part the or however the their depending on the what kind of temple and the accommodations and um i was only going to stay in hotel if someone had uh donated like friends or family donated uh money for hotel and um i did get donations and i had 43 43 nights or 43 day, you know hiking days of hiking I only used seven hotels. Um, there were other times that I got to stay indoors, but it was um, there were free spots to sleep, like little huts on the side of the road and like um, bus stops or whatever you could find. Like it was just utterly random. Um, but I was always able to, you know, find somewhere most of the time legit to sleep. There was a few nights that were cold or a few nights that were not the best spots I chose, but um, mainly the last last nights were used for a hotel just because the temperature had dropped. But going back to Temple Six, this particular one, you were if you were a pilgrim, you were allowed to sleep in the bell tower. So the huge gate, if you can imagine, that before you enter the you know, that enters the compound of the temple, which had beautiful gardens and a koi pond and um it was a nicer temple, however I did not get to go too much inside uh just because um I was I wasn't staying that long. I just I arrived in the evening when everything was closed and you were allowed to sleep. So you go up in that bell tower and it had a legit like old school massive Japanese bell. It was amazing, just the whole experience. And um there was this older woman there also who had set up uh her little um sleeping bag and whatnot, and I had seen her on my way to Temple One 
and she didn't have that good of English, but she was able to tell me that she called herself Running Girl, and she was running the whole pilgrimage, and she was awesome to meet because this is my first night, and she went through my map book with me and pointed out every spot on the map that would have been a great sleep spot for me to check out, so she was a huge help, and I'm really thankful that she pointed out those spots because some of them worked out, some of them did not, but I wouldn't have known any of it had it not been for her. And so during this trip, um, it also gave me, it also reaffirmed a belief in a higher power. Um, I was raised very hardcore Christian, but I uh, not had, by no means had stopped believing, but I just stopped believing how harsh it was. Like as far as, you know, the services and the tithing and the, and the, um, and the baptism, just all these rules just to get into heaven. And in my mind, I was thinking like my stepdad I use for an example because he's one of the greatest men I know. And not only is he an amazing, you know, stepfather and, um, you know, husband to my mom, he's also does anything and everything he can to help anyone and everyone. He volunteered rescue squad. Then he became a paramedic and shock trauma, EMT, and he did, or I think it's a little backwards, but then came paramedic and then became firefighter and then he became a captain. And, you know, he can, you know, he can build anything. He, you know, he built the first floor of my mom's house pretty much by himself. He sees anything and just can duplicate it, you know, elect everything. And he's the kind of man that makes you want to be a better man. But I don't know his religious beliefs as far as I I believe he's, you know, Christian in a sense of form, but I know he's not doing like any, you know, he's not going to church. You know, he's not, he doesn't wear, you know, a cross. He doesn't, you know, if there's prayers, it's to himself and on his own time, like it's very subtle. And for someone that's as amazing as him, you know, in the Christian's eyes of not doing, you know, whether he's been baptized, you know, but just not doing that stuff. If, if that's the kind of person that God would let go to hell, then like I remember having this discussion with a friend and he was like, well, would you want to follow that God? And I'm like, no, that's not. And it's not that, you know, I'm like saying there's not a God or that's not. It's just I don't think he's that harsh, whoever it is. But since being out of that whole lifestyle, I just had really drifted away from any kind of I was just very unsure, didn't really um, know what my belief was anymore. But there were so many coincidences on this trip, too many to name, that just things that worked out. It could have been music. It could have been, you know, um, who I met, what they said. It was just so many things ended up being coincidences. Who helped me that it just reaffirmed a belief in a higher power. I remember there was, um, I remember going back, I think I skipped over this, um, back at that temple store, I had started to describe the things you wore and I'd mentioned that you were wearing white. And you wear a white because that symbolizes you're a pilgrim. And I told you about, you know, that's what you're buried in. And the hat, if you can imagine, is like that Raiden hat. And the hat has, a, you know, it's a circle hat, like the, the rice field hat. And it did an amazing job of protecting from sun and rain. And it also symbolized your coffin. And the walking stick you carry, it also symbolized Buddha's foot. And you had writing on your on your attire that... I can't. I don't know what it all said exactly, but I know it. It, said, it just mentions that there's two people walking, you and Buddha, not just 
even if you're by yourself in essence you, that you're that with that walking stick in hand that's that's representing buddha's foot and you took care of it as such when you'd go to temples or inside places you would clean you would clean the bottom of that walking stick off just like as if it was a shoe or um, entering someone's home and cleaning your feet you're giving that respect to buddha as well and that thing also represented your headstone and you would see gravestones along the way with those walking sticks next to them and that meant that the, those were pilgrims that had died there and that was heavy to know that someone had died on this journey, to, you know, to try to get healthy. And just, you know, it was, it was a very real experience, especially being how old it was. And also on the walking stick, you were to wear a bell and on your hip you were to wear a bell. And I thought the whole purpose when I started this, you know, before I, you know, got it read and, you know, as far as figured out what everything was for, that I thought, you know, just to get lost and and let your mind do its thing while you're, you know, trying to, you know, I don't know, heal or whatever. And it was the exact opposite. Those bells are there to keep ringing, to keep you in the present, to remind you to be in the now. And it was just, you know, it was just coincidental that Alex had also, besides the prayer, give me a stack of books to read. Uh, one being Hagakure. H-A-G-A-K-U-R-E. And that was more like the Bushido Code. That was the like the the rules for the samurai. Amazing book. Like it's like parable format written by and you know just a 90-year-old Japanese man and a monk in the a former samurai. And it's like sometimes there's conflicting points of view and they make complete sense. And it's just a it's a really good read. And a lot of it can still apply today. Um and another one of the books was talking about walking meditation and being that I was doing an 880 mile hike, it was a lot of walking time. And to give you an example, like after Temple 6, I made it to, I slept at Temple 10, which was a, uh, uh, like a free little spot next to a bathhouse. And the next day was Temple 12 and Temple 12 is up or over three mountains so you climb two mountains and then the third you climb to finally reach the temple and that is the temple that 90 percent of walking pilgrims will quit because that's just too much that's that's where they drew the line and so it was an amazing experience just the different landscapes with usually the ocean would always be on the left unless you were going into these mountains but there was just every landscape sand rock you know everything beach uh, you know, mountain, you know, this, you know, neighborhood, city, uh, everything. It was just, you know, I can't describe everything. Like I said, there, there's, uh, there, if, the, if you are actually interested in seeing it on my Facebook, if you go to Michael Fowler and search um, on my Facebook, uh, Shikoku, S-H-I-K-O-K-U, um, uh, there should be a 27-minute video that I made. I, I GoPro'd the whole thing. And so continuing on this, you know, this path, there was a few times like going back to the, the reaffirming the belief that I remember I was falling. I, had, uh, I was going through this mountain pass that was um, on the way to one of the Bangai temples and it wasn't a used path anymore. It was very just washed out from all the storms and the pathway gave way on me and I started to fall. And I remember as I was falling kind of down this hillside, it was that like, oh, shit, here we go, tuck and roll, you know, like just prepare yourself. And as I swung, as I fell and I swung out that walking stick, when it caught the ground, I can't like, 
you know, I mean, you don't, you know me, kind of, you know me. But man, I do jujitsu, high level jujitsu. I know about balance and I know about these things. And I can't tell you when I swung that stick out and it caught the ground, I was more solid than if I was on my own two feet, even though I was on my own few feet, but I was just falling. But it just, I was almost completely parallel, but just I was more solid than anything. And it happened twice like that where these were complete oh shit falls. Not like I almost, I can almost catch myself. It's just get ready to eat shit. And I, so, and it just, and that really, those two moments were some of the big ones. And there was more. And as I continued out throughout this pilgrimage and continued reading these books and trying to be in the now, you know, one of the one of the proverbs or one of the the, the examples I really liked was about uh, being in the moment was drinking tea, and it talked about drinking tea with a friend. And if you drink tea with a friend and you start talking about your troubles or whatever's been going on, you know, and that usually it's our negative things in our life that we start to share, we no longer drink the tea; we drink our troubles. How many times have we been driving and all of a sudden like looked up and we're like just down the road way further than where we last remembered like that that time is gone and just like that tea that tea was gone you drank it and didn't even sit take time to appreciate it and not that i'm going to sit in silence every time i drink my tea but it did speak you know just as far as like just taking the time to appreciate and you can apply that to so many things. Like That's one of the few things we can actually give is our true presence, being really in the moment, not just nodding through conversation or waiting for our turn to speak, but truly being just present in that moment. And this isn't something I just like, I got was getting all, that, getting all right on that walk. This is just my mindset as of now, as, as time has moved on since this. And so continuing on the pilgrimage, I got to meet friends along the way. And there was a lot of times I was by myself and I met new friends. Some people drove out to meet me. Uh, and it was just, there was like, there's so many stories and it's so hard to put into words that I would just, I would almost do it in injustice. So I want to make sure I just stick to the main parts and the, the main, the things that I was getting out of, of the pilgrimage. And I'll do my best to explain any of the really cool things that I got to see. But um, at one point, I found myself that um, there was 90 kilometers between temples. But there was one bangai in between. And I was, and I thought, I'll sleep at that one. And I originally had planned to try to, st- I was going to stay in the free spot to sleep where you don't have really anything. But then I thought it'll be nice to experience one of the ceremonies here. And this looks like a cool temple to experience. And it was amazing. I got to attend a fire ceremony uh, with, the, with the, uh, the priest. And it just if I could explain the amount of Buddhas in this room after walking, walking down this hallway that had 108 huge tiles on the ground. And each tile represented, and it was in a straight line, like going around a straight line, but in a curving hallway going along the ground, each with like over a foot in between. And they all had dirt from the temple, each number underneath, all 108. And there was just so much history and artwork and beauty in these buildings. And luckily the the daughter of the priest, uh, she had... um, one time ago, had a life in America and was um, married to an American guy. So she spoke really good English and she was able to, um, you know, the following day to explain more to me in detail, which I was really fortunate because most of the time it was very hard to explain and talk. And 
one thing I got to go back to because it's an uh, important part of the story. Just kind of skipped over it. Is I talked about that first temple and the and the the I had talked about bringing that hammer and I had talked about the burden of it and I had talked about throwing up at the you know going up the 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 mountain and that that had symbolized what I had said earlier about you know carrying my boy. Well, now in my best Japanese, when I got to the the front office, I was trying to explain what it represented and I think I did a good job of getting my message across and I told my ass if I could let if, would they let me keep the hammer here because it's time for me to let go of it and they agreed to keep it and so I was able to continue continue on after that first day without that any in essence that burden of that hammer um, not just in the the physical sense of carrying that heavy thing but actual the, the I was trying to symbolize letting go and so as I went on, you know, and I and continued on through, like, you know, like I said, going through, you know, visiting each of these temples and just having all these experiences, um, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if I was, you know, was it going to be some, uh, you know, just uh, change all of a sudden. And as I, you know, came to the end of the pilgrimage and uh, it was... You know, my feet were busted. It was, you know, it was more, it became like more, like I was very, it was, I had to finish. Like, and it was, it was becoming harder and harder. Um, and, you know, each temple just being, and there's not, you have to do it more than once to really appreciate and get all of it in. Because there's no way I could just go see every temple for, as far as I got, I saw 108, but there is no way to experience everything around it. There's not enough time. You would have to go back over and over. And it was really cool because there are people who've done it over and over and over. And they had gone, and you'd, I've met some that had done it over 100 times, um, 200 times. Sometimes they did it by bicycle, sometimes they did it by bus. And uh, because I was walking, I was rare. Like people would take pictures of you walking. That would be, it was, it was just, it was hilarious, at least to me, just by myself. Like it was so irritating too because these guys are all riding by in a bus all air conditioned while I'm struggling in this sun and they're taking pictures of me while I'm walking. And, uh, but it was still just, you know, like I said, you, you, you got to go through every terrain and the artistry and the beauty in these temples and just, you know, getting to visit all of them and seeing like some of them were very elaborate and some were just very plain. It looked like it would be like a house with a garage. And then some were like something out of Star Trek. Like this thing looks like the Borg. In a huge cube, it was just, you know, it was it was just an experience, and uh, I highly recommend if anyone is interested in doing the Shikoku pilgrimage that uh, you um, you know do your research before you go, and if you do have any questions, you can always you know contact me. Uh, I'm easy to find on Instagram or Facebook. The last thing after the pilgrimage was to go pay respects to Buddha. So um, a friend had. Uh, set up a time to come meet me and her and another friend had uh, picked me up and we headed that journey to Wakayama Prefecture, a different spot inside Japan where the last Buddha is buried or said to be uh, you know, in meditation awaiting the next Buddha. And I had to tell you, it was a strong place. I've never felt what I felt there. 
she wouldn't even go inside the gates. She waited by the car while me and the other the other friend walked through and visited the temple and went all the way to the back and you know visited where where Buddha is uh, you know where he lays. And Buddha's temple was the calmest place where he's laying. I've I mean there's you know it feels like there's like an absence of air almost like there is such stillness and calmness. But the moment I stepped and it got, then it was dark. And the moment you step off that temple, that temple onto the regular grounds and through the rest of the cemetery, it was like almost a vibration. You could feel everything. And I, it was it was very uneasy. And while it was beautiful in the few hours of daylight that I had there, it quickly got scary. And I was just ready to, you know, be out of there. I didn't, I was like, I've seen enough. I'd like to come back one time, but that was enough. And so after I finished the pilgrimage, I went back home to Hawaii, and in essence, nothing had changed. Again, it was a great distraction, but uh, in that moment, like I did feel better, and as far as like there was certain parts, but nothing had changed really. I still couldn't sleep. I still couldn't eat. I still wake up every night, you know, reaching for my boy because you know he used to sleep next to me, and you know, a little two-year-old, you know what I mean, like it. Any of the parents who's you know gone through you know gone through any of this, whether having a child, losing a child, anything, you know what I mean. You know what it's like to have your little your little your little person next to you, and so every night just kind of having like not nightmares, but waking up like in a cold sweat, reaching for him and he's not there. And so I um, I went through a few months of that before the first I feel like sign of change had came, and the beginning of the new year in two thousand fourteen. Um, I finally was able to just at least take a deep breath. I felt like it was the first time I was able to breathe again. Um, I was, I still was able to put on a good face. I wasn't by any means, you know, walking around miserable, but, um, I had just, you know, kind of gotten a routine of just survival now. I didn't have any purpose anymore. And a man with no purpose is not, that's not a good thing. That's, you know what I mean? That's almost, that's like death. And especially with this hole. And I, ha- I, didn't, I didn't know how to fill it. You know, there's no, there was no relationship that was going to make this feel better. And I was also jaded because I felt, you know, I worked so hard and I was such a good person to my, you know, significant other at the time. And to get treated like this, to be lied to this whole time, to have like this ultimate betrayal like this. And it pissed me off because she could never have this because she'll always be mom. But the best thing I felt like in that little guy's life, you know what I mean? And I'm not allowed to be in it. Or that was the best thing about being, you know what I mean? That was, that was it in it. But it's like, I'm the one who got shoved out. And it just, you know... It was just suffering. It was just constant suffering. I remember even looking up, there was like these, out of Buddhist books, but it's like, how can I be happy in a sea of suffering? The mind is a restless monkey. And so with no sleep, my mind was just torturing me with this, you know what I mean? Everything reminded me of him and I just gutted my whole house. I got rid of everything that was in his room, in my room, and and just lived in a blank spot with a TV and just a mattress on the floor for the most part, or a futon. But I, you know what I mean? His stuff was right where he left it, right where he got, you know, his clothes, his toys. And I had to just finally get rid of all that stuff and just, and, but 
during this time of suffering, I also caused suffering. And I was acting very inappropriately for who I am and for who I'm supposed to be. And even though like I made apologies and moved on in my life, and even though and even after years later being brought back into light and being smeared on the internet and, and whatnot, even though it's in essence it's an it's a regret, it's not one that brings me down. It's a reminder. It's a reminder that's not who I am. And that's not who I'm planning on being. It's a reminder to to Remember that there's people that are going to look up to you no matter in what situation. And if you put yourself to be looked up to, you need to, you know, carry yourself accordingly. And it also taught me about friends and, and, and what to do for them. I've had similar, a similar situation happen, you know, in my academy with a student. And the first cause was not to, to start with anger and just the pain. It was... Like, let's find out what's going on and let's address the issue. And, you know, be a friend for this person. Get them the help they need. And, like, for me, it made a, you know, when I, when I, when I was that person, I found out who my friends were in essence. Not that the other people weren't my friends, but they weren't, they weren't prepared to deal with me. They were done with me. They, it's over. Done. No more communication. And those who stuck out with me, rather than looking out for more punishment and looking to, you know, vilify or spread rumors or whatnot, they looked to seek help, make me, you know, help out. They knew that wasn't me. And I'm very thankful to those friends in my life that, that didn't listen to things they just heard and, you know what I mean, and, and really use their own mind to just make proper, you know, and understand that, listen, it doesn't matter. People make mistakes. And for any other, I would say, guy, girl, mainly men, if you get in, this, in a similar situation, don't be that guy. You know what I mean? There's, it's, it's not worth it. Um, you know, and it's not a death sentence either. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to stick to a stigma. For me, I was hurt, and I was like, well, forget being a nice guy. I'm going to be just like every other piece of shit that's out there. But that's not who I was. And... I didn't like the little trail of destruction that it caused. And I'm fortunate now to be surrounded by positive people and positive friends and a positive girlfriend and, and, uh, and to just, you know, to, and to keep working on the, 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 the good things in my life. But we just want to, the, the whole point of this, like this, this Shikoku story for me is it didn't, it wasn't just about the, the, the journey in the middle. Because what it took to get to get there was 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 something I don't wish on to anybody. And if anyone needs someone to talk to that's in, been in a similar situation, I'm more than open ears. And you know, there's ways to handle these situations. And I'm not going to say, you know what I mean. There's people who committed suicide. There's people who committed all kinds of atrocities, and I dealt with my situation wrong. But Thank goodness that I had good people in my life that directed me towards the proper places. And, I, and you know, with whatever, with, you know, positive people in therapy and, and just in continuing to, you know, put myself in, in good positive situations and, and not to, those demons that we all carry, those seeds that are in our mind, like they're, they're there. They were, they're, whether, they're, whether you want to plant it or not, they're there. And you can't dig them out, but you can choose not to water them.
And I know it sounds like more of a, you know, quoting out of a book, but that's true. That's what it is. You don't put yourself in situations to, to let any of these negative things flourish, no matter what it is. Whatever, you know, no matter what your issues are. Don't, you know what I mean? Don't, don't, you know, make that a, uh, don't, don't be in the environment that those negative things can grow. And now that, you know, I'm by no means like there's been, you know, complete healing done because of how recent it was still. At least I've got direction and control back of my life and it's no longer that jaded feeling and, and it's no longer the, the, you know, just the negative outlook. And uh, if, and like I said, if anyone is interested in ever trying to do the pilgrimage, doing shikoku, I'll give you some quick little tips. Uh, I did it personally in Havaianas for over half of it. Rubber sole Havaianas. Um, the mountainous parts, the actual hiking, which I would say is over just over a third of it, because most of it will be roads and like pathways, but actual rocky terrain and like hiking. That's over a third of it. I wore Vibram five-toe shoes. And um, I've got big feet, wide feet. And uh, it was, um, I don't know, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of wearing shoes. It could have been better, it could have been worse. From what I understand from most of the people that I had talked to, Crocs were the way to go. And I wasn't doing that. But I stuck to the rubber shoe. But if you have any other uh, questions or comments um, about the Shikoku pilgrimage or anything as far as, uh, you know, topics on, on future podcasts, feel free to hit me up at the Fowler effect on Instagram or Michael Fowler on Facebook. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast today. And, uh, I'll be back next week with, I don't know yet, but I'll be back next week.